Comparing ourselves to others. Everybody does it, don't they? At some point in their lives, they do it. Maybe it happens more to others. Who are you comparing yourself to? I've been doing vocational ministry for right about a decade now, and I've been working with people in some form or fashion for close to two decades. And I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come up to me and say, did you hear what they said? Or did you hear what they did? Oh my goodness. I know I'm a sinner and all, but I'm so thankful that I've never done that. Sometimes it's not that blatant. Sometimes it's masked in Christianese lingo. I've been asked many times, where do you draw the line, pastor? Pastor, correct them. And yes, I believe, hear this, I believe in pastoral correction, in church discipline, it's biblical. And I believe that as pastor, I may have a a little bit more of a ground to correct than, than others. But let me tell you, every time a situation like this comes up, I have, to, I have to guard and evaluate and protect my own heart. I have to check my motives to make sure that as I correct, it is done not out of comparison, but out of love. Now thinking back over these last 20 years of working with people, thinking back to my own comparisons to other people, which I'm guilty of, God really hit me this week with the text we're going to be in. He really said, James, this message is for you first, and then the body. So know that as we go from here on out. We're back in Luke 18 this week. Go ahead and flip there in your Bibles. Today's story is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to the temple to pray. This is a very well-known story, one that a lot of commentators compare to uh, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan in popularity. Now, as is the case with those two stories, this story, too, is a parable. Now, in teaching parables, Jesus is very often pointing to a greater lesson, to something he is doing or will be doing in his ministry and in the kingdom. Now, recognizing that, as I I studied this passage, I found myself asking a couple questions. So what is Jesus trying to teach us in this? What lessons are hiding in there that need to be unearthed And what is it that Jesus is comparing it to in his earthly ministry? I want to take a look and see. And out of respect for God's word, I ask that we stand as I read this text together. This is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be moved. 
This is the word of the Lord. May we learn from it this morning. Amen? You guys may be seated. Two men gone to the temple to pray. And what it looks like is there's a whole lot of comparing going on. Everybody does it, right? I want to go through this passage verse by verse. And I'm going to jump between a couple different translations. The English, the English Standard Translation and the New Living Translation. One is more word for word from the Greek and one is more thought for thought. So you get to see some of the differences. We'll start in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, same verse, different, different translation. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. We see a few things right off the bat with this verse. First, Jesus says this is a story, a parable. It's a teaching that he is doing. Secondly, we see who, or better yet, what heart condition Jesus is trying to address. He's addressing a group of people who think that they are already right. They're self-righteous. He's trying to teach a group of people who think that their works make them right with God. The verse says, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That they had great confidence in their own righteousness. Now thirdly, in this verse, we see how those who thought themselves righteous saw everyone else. Everyone else was scorned or looked at with contempt. In the English language, these are strong words, right? They are. In the Greek, they're even stronger. The word scorned means to count as nothing, or as zero. It means to despise utterly. It means to regard something as lacking any sort of value at all. That's how these people were viewing everyone else aside from themselves. Wow. Huh. All that in verse 9. Let's move to verse 10. The text says, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. This verse, simply setting up the characters in the story. And those characters began with a Pharisee. Now for those listening to Jesus' story that day, the listeners that were around him, when he said Pharisee, everyone there would have thought highly of them. The Pharisees were a group of people that were held in high esteem in that culture. When Jesus said Pharisee, words that popped into his listeners' minds probably were words like devout, loyal, law-following, all positive things. The listeners wouldn't have necessarily shared the same negative view that we have of Pharisees today. Now, opposite of the Pharisees, for Jesus' listeners, when he said that there was a despised tax collector, they would have had a terrible view of him. This guy, even if he were a Jew, which he probably was because he went to the temple to pray, he was working for the Romans. This made him despicable. He was hated amongst his fellow Jews. I'm guessing when the, the listeners of Jesus heard him say a despised tax collector was part of the story, there were all sorts of four-letter words that popped into their mind and names that they wanted to call this guy that we probably shouldn't repeat in church. 
Those are the two types of people in Jesus' story. One author named James Boyce wrote a book about the parables of Jesus, and he said this. So when Jesus spoke of two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, it was as though he were speaking of the chief justice of the Supreme Court and a child molester, or the president of the United States and a prostitute. Those were the gaps between the views of those two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's interesting that to some degree, both men in the story recognize their need to go to the temple, to God's place, and pray. So let's look at these prayers. First, the prayer of the Pharisee. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tithe of all that I get. Same verse, different translation. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, or prayed this prayer to himself. I thank you, God, that I'm not, like a, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. It says he prayed to himself. When I was little, I don't know how old, but I was sitting down for a meal in a public place with my, I think it was my dad and my uncle. Since it was a public place, we were about to eat. One of them leaned forward and said, hey, we're just going to, we're going to pray to ourselves for the food. Now, both my dad and my uncle are quite witty, so whoever didn't say it, the other one kind of looked at him with a, a, a smirk and a smile and said, I think I'm going to pray to God for the food, not to myself. That stuck with me. So as I was reading today's text, and I saw the footnote on the bottom of my Bible where it said the Pharisee prayed this prayer to himself, which a lot of the early translations have in there, I had to smile. The Pharisee, Jesus tells us, separated himself from everyone else who had gone to the temple to pray that day. He looked boldly and confidently upwards and he prayed, if you want to call it a prayer. Realistically, it's more of a self-description. One commentator says this, he says, the Pharisee did not go to pray. He went to inform God how good he was. Now look at him comparing himself to the other people in this story. Verse 11 again, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. Oh, Lord, look at me. Look at what I don't do. Oh, and Lord, look at what I do do. I fast twice a week, and I tie the tenth of everything that I get. Let's look at those two things. He says he fasts twice a week. Fasting is a good thing, and it's biblical. It was actually a law in the Old Testament. The law said you must fast one day a year. On the Day of Atonement, Numbers 29, verse 7 says, Ten days later, on the tenth day of the same month, you must call another holy assembly. On that day, the Day of Atonement, the people must go without food. They must fast. And they must do no ordinary work. 
Several other passages that say that same thing. And this one day, this day of atonement, became known by Jeremiah as the fasting day. To fast. One day a year. Required by law. The Pharisee in our story says he fasts twice a week. So what gives? Well, what gives are people expounding more on the law, which the Pharisees were good at, and making more regulations. One day a year required to fast, but for those people wishing to gain special merit, the interpretation of the law said fast two days a week. Mondays and Thursdays became those days. Why? Because Mondays and Thursdays were market days in Jerusalem. That meant all the country folk came from out in the fields and everybody came to the city. And those that were fasting, they they made their faces white with ash and they put on their worst clothes so that their piety could be seen by everyone. It's no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, And when you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, this is the only reward they will ever get. It's as if the, the Pharisee were saying, Oh, look at me. I am holy because I fast two days a week. Mm. You guys watching? That's right. Bragging to God about how good he was at fasting and the fact that he tithed a tenth of everything he got. Tithing, too, is biblical. It's law. According to Numbers 18.21 and Deuteronomy 14.22, the Levites, so God's uh, workers in the church, were required to be given by everyone else, those who didn't work in the church, given a tenth of the people's produce. The Pharisee in our story says, not only do I give you a tenth of my produce, I give you a tenth of everything I get. Everything. Oh my, look at that Pharisee. Look at how much he put in the offering plate. Isn't he holy? I want to go on a rabbit trail. I was thinking about these two things that the Pharisee told God that he did do. And I had to wonder if those two things were the public benchmarks of what it took to be holy. Tithing and fasting. Those two things are visible. And I wondered, is is that what people saw? And then determined if somebody was righteous. Determined if they were uh, right with God. Holy. As I was thinking about that, I started wondering, what are the benchmarks for us today? What are the things that we do that others may see that may be the benchmarks for them to say, hey, there's a good person. Is it Going to church on Sunday? Is it reading our Bibles in a, in a public place? Is it going on a mission trip? Is it not drinking or not smoking or not going to R-rated movies, at, at least when people can see you going to the theater for R-rated movies? Are, are those the benchmarks? What is it that when, when people look at us and see us doing something, they say, wow, they're good people? I didn't come down to a final thing on our visible benchmarks. But I know that for the Pharisee, he was doing what his culture's benchmarks were. And I bet that the listeners to Jesus' story were thinking to themselves, you go, Pharisee. That sounds great. They were probably saying, man, that guy is good. Well done, well done. What a great prayer, too, they may have been thinking. Everything you prayed is true. 
You don't do the things you said you don't do, and you do do the things you said you do do. Awesome. You're holy. That's the Pharisees' prayer. Let's take a look at the tax collector's prayer. This dreaded, hated, scorned tax man. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Same verse, different translation. The tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. We just spent time looking at the Pharisee who was definitely comparing himself to those around him. He was looking around, glancing up, looking down at people, puffing himself up in the process. And this tax collector, on the other hand, did no such thing. Similar to the Pharisee, he too separated himself from everyone else. He stood at a distance. But this was not in a, I am better than you type of way. In fact, if anything, it was in a, I am worse than you type of way. And we see this mentality played out a few ways in this verse. First, the man would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He couldn't bear the thought of getting a glimpse of God or having God get a glimpse of him. I think he had the heart of Ezra as he prayed. Just listen to Ezra chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. At that time of the sacrifice, I, Ezra, stood up from where I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees and I lifted my hands to the Lord my God. I prayed, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you. For our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Now unlike Ezra, who raised his arms in prayer, this tax man used his arms for something different. Our text says he beat his chest. And the Greek word for beat, it means to inflict punishment, to wound. This was not, oh Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I mean, this was some serious pounding going on. This was an outward expression of an inward condition of remorse and sorrow for the sin this man had committed. And the recognition that he was standing before a holy God. See, this tax man was taking the same posture and attitude that many people in the Old Testament had when they recognized their sin and compared it to the holiness of God. Job chapter 40 says, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. Isaiah, he said, then then it said it's all over. One second. There we go. Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. The prophet Habakkuk, in chapter 3, verse 16, said, I trembled inside when I heard this, and I shook in terror. Sin meeting God. And the posture it produced, this continued on in the New Testament. You remember what Peter said to Jesus in the boat in Luke chapter 5, verse 8? 
He said, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sin for I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle John, who walked the dusty trails of life with Jesus on the island of Patmos, upon seeing Jesus in a vision, John writes this: When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Sin meeting a holy God. This tax man knew he was a sinner standing in the midst of a holy God and it it caused him to keep his eyes down and to beat his chest in sorrow. Now his prayer, his prayer asks for mercy from God, claiming that he is a sinner. Most of your translations have him say that, right? Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Go ahead, look down. A sinner, right? Okay. The Greek actually should read the sinner, not a sinner. This man recognized that he was potentially the worst sinner, or at least that's what he is saying. Show mercy to me. God, I need mercy. I need appeasement or satisfaction of the divine wrath of my sin. Mercy. What an amazing thing to be begging for. What's really cool, this might be a little bit of a tangent, what's really cool is that this word that the sinner uses, mercy, is the verb form of the same noun used in the Old Testament for mercy seat. You guys remember what the mercy seat was? As part of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid was called the mercy seat. You can read Exodus 25 for a fuller picture of this. This mercy seat was complete gold, and on top of it it had two angels or two cherubim with its outstretched wings, kind of stretching out like this, and and between the two wings was where it was said that God symbolically dwelt. This was the mercy seat. Now once a year, on the Day of Atonement, have we heard that before? Once again, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the only day required to fast, a priest would come and sprinkle the blood of a freshly killed animal on that mercy seat. Innocent life for guilty life. It was a substitute. The animal's blood was the propitiation, the appeasement for the people's sins in Israel. So our tax man in the story today in crying out for mercy the way he was, was really crying out, Oh God, mercy seat me. Mercy seat me. Be the appeasement that I need for my sins. This verse could literally be translated, be mercy seated to me. Or treat me as one who comes on the basis of blood shed on the mercy seat. As an offering for sins. That's the tax man's prayer. That is a powerful prayer. Completely opposite of the mercy prayer. Now you want to know what else is great about the tax man's prayer? It is both a verbal and a visual representation of the gospel. The prayer starts, God. Right? That's where the gospel has to start. With God. Now the prayer ends, sinner. Okay? Starts with God, ends with sinner. That's another key part of the gospel. We have to to come to a recognition that our sin separates us from God. Now, what stands in the middle? Mercy. Mercy seat me. 
It is the mercy as lived out in Jesus Christ on the cross. The blood sprinkled on the mercy seat that connects God with sinner. That is the tax man's prayer. Oh God, be mercy seated to me, a sinner. That's powerful. I told you earlier that in the teaching of parables, Jesus was very often pointing to a greater lesson that he was doing in his earthly ministry, or that he would be doing. Was the mercy seat idea part of that teaching? Was the God, sinner, mercy part of that teaching? Maybe. But I think there's more to it also. Let's look at the final verse of our passage. Luke chapter 18, verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Same verse, different translation. Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Talk about a complete reversal of what Jesus' listeners were expecting. Right? The sinner went home justified, vindicated from the wrath of God. The tax man went home right, not the man who came claiming to be right. Flip back in your Bibles to Philippians 2, verse 7. I began this message saying that everyone compares themselves to others. And we got to see how the Pharisee did that. We got to see how in this situation the tax collector did not. And now we get to see in verse 14, Jesus say, look, if you're going to compare yourself to anyone, compare yourself to me. You see that in verse 14? The last line. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who make themselves low will be lifted up. This is a description of of Jesus Christ. We see it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. Paul was writing, he said, Instead, Jesus gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him. God exalted him to the place of highest honor. And he gave him the name that is above all other names. The word for humbled that Paul uses in that passage is the exact same root word that Jesus used in our text today in Luke 18. Jesus humbled himself, made himself low, and he was highly exalted, which means lifted up or elevated. Listen again to that same passage in Philippians 2. It said, Instead, Jesus gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave, was born of a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all other names. Now listen to Luke 18. Verse 14, the second half. Jesus said, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. The Pharisee had exalted himself. But those who humble themselves 
will be exalted. That was Jesus. Jesus saying to himself, if you're going to compare yourself to anybody, compare yourself to me. This is a parable about comparisons. And there's several of them in there. It's comparisons in prayer. Both men's prayers were answered. The Pharisee asked for nothing, and he got nothing. The sinner came and asked for mercy, and he got mercy. He got justification. It's a comparison in the posture of prayer. One eyes lifted up, bold and proud, the other eyes down and beating on the chest. This is a comparison with humans to other humans versus humans to Jesus. It's also a parable of the comparison of how we get made right with God. Our works versus mercy. In all these comparisons, Jesus is simply pointing back to Himself. Humble yourself like Jesus did. Compare yourself only to Jesus, which when you do, will lead you to crying out for mercy. And you too can go home justified, made right with God. Everybody compares themselves to others. Who are you comparing yourself to this morning?